0: Welcome to Radio Survivor. We are here for the love of radio and sound. It is my pleasure to welcome to our airwaves, my friend in radio, Mitch jesrich Mitch, thanks for coming today.
1: It's, fine. it's my very good pleasure, Eric, to be here. It's been, it's been a very long time, sir. Yeah. So just just to, for full disclosure, because I, I think you shouldn't uh, keep this from from your listeners, Eric. We, we've been friends for for a long, long time. And uh, we, we first met back at uh, KPFA, what what will we say, maybe, what was it, 15 years ago, 14 years ago, somewhere around then?
0: Yes, well, I, I'm happy to tell the listeners that one of the reasons I'm having you on the show today is to look backwards at our time together in radio at Pacifica Radio Station KPFA. We first met around the beginning of the Iraq War maybe 3 months into the beginning of the Iraq war. So in the in in the middle of 2003, but we were internet coworkers in 2003 back before that became the default reality for all desk workers. You and I were were connected to one another over the telephones and the internet producing a News program together free and by, speech radio uh, news we, we were this is
1: this is when i was in washington dc yeah so we first you were met, in berkeley
0: we first met when you miss jess Rich, were the washington dc capital correspondent for free speech radio news which is a beautiful place to start today's episode because i love to tell people about free speech radio news
1: and it's really fascinating as you were in berkeley uh, as, a, as a you were you were a tech producer, if I, if I recall correctly, you were helping put the show together, and that was no easy task because nobody was in the same place with this newscast. Uh, I was involved every morning in the editorial calls, and we'd have people in Los Angeles. Uh, you know, the the, the the main producer was in Los Angeles. The host would be in New York, or I would be in D.C. Uh, nobody, whether the tech team was in Berkeley. Uh, that's where you were nobody was in the same place and yet we were able to and we had reporters all over the world and yet we were still able to to pull off uh <laughs> this newscast uh five days uh, a week and i know i was especially difficult on the tech team because i was the one person with a daily deadline and my deadline was kind of early and i had to go get all the sound i needed for a story and, and put it together uh by by uh one o'clock your time that's right yeah way too early um, it, for
0: you know, for washington d c uh what's what's the um the news cycle in d c uh, was it was kind of in the middle by the time uh your first deadline to file so you were you were late for the morning and way too early for the evening news cycle
1: so yeah, I, I had I have an excuse, but nonetheless, I, I know. That's great. I, I think I I even think I, I drove our our, our, our I drew I drove our uh, previous uh, engineer before you out <laughs> because of uh, it.
0: I can speak on behalf of uh, my my coworker at the tech team of Free Speech Radio News in Berkeley, who founded the tech team, who built it up from scratch, and was an incredible. Um, an incredible brain a person who who i won't name out loud because i haven't gotten their permission to name them but i will because um as a leader in my life as a as an example of how to be a professional in radio um they really set a a bar and um uh, there was two individuals who who trained me on the free speech radio news tech team and then um Allowed me to begin working first at first as a volunteer, like we all do, right? We start as volunteers in community radio, and then eventually, um, if we're extremely lucky, we start uh, gathering paid shifts into into our into our little work day in order to do the work of making radio. And yeah, um, the tech team was always under pressure because the you know the the day would begin kind of late in the morning, like around 10 a.m., and the show, a half-an-hour news magazine with a host reading introductions to stories that are each about four minutes long that are being emailed in through the audio over the web, which was not impossible in 2003, but still kind of unique. The idea of sending Large audio files over the internet had not yet been, um, you know, what uh, industrialized the way it is these days. You now everybody can send a big audio file now. Um, there weren't even USB connections to get the audio onto computers, so every producer in across the globe, right? We had we had producers sending their audio from Africa, from India, from from the Middle East and as, and, and Mitch, you were sending yours from the U S Capitol. Uh, how did you get your audio onto a computer in 2003?
1: Well, this much the same way I, I do now. Uh, you know, you're able to record on a computer. Uh, I, I would have a recorder, uh, a mini disc recorder at the time, which was used. And then I, to, to put that sound on the computer and I have to connect, uh, through analog wires right. to the computer and I would play what I wanted to put on the computer in real time. Uh, and then I would do the same thing with my, my voice tracks. So well actually I might've just recorded straight onto the computer, not probably not onto my, uh, mini disc player, but once I got everything onto the computer, uh, it, it was really not a whole lot different than, than it is now in fact I even started using the same audio uh, editing program that I still use today uh, at the time it was called cool edit yeah uh, but now it's Adobe audition uh, but it's fundamentally the right. same
0: okay I want I, I love this I do want to get deep into the radio nostalgia weeds as as people who create things with technology but I I, I went off I went off on a tangent. Let's go back to, um, I wanted to ask you a question, a big question, Mitch. I wonder what, what do you, what do you think the reason is to be on the radio? Why do we make radio?
1: Well, I think there are probably a million answers to that question, right? And probably everyone has their, uh, their own sense of why to be on the radio, but in the most simple term uh radio is a media outlet and gives the ability of a person or or people uh to be able to speak to a mass of people um and i and I think that fundamentally is what and you could do that for entertainment, you could do it for news, you could do it for music you can you know all it, it in other words in other words it's another stage. Um, everything we used to do on a stage suddenly was put on radio. Perhaps not the news, but so with the radio, and of course, radio be, w- would lead eventually to TV. But radio was first. But I think fundamentally they both accomplish the, the the same thing: the ability to communicate to be on it. There's one. There's a reason to watch it or listen to it, and there's a reason to be on it. Yeah. And, and I suspect the reason to be on it is to be able to. One thing that everyone would probably agree to is to be able to uh, broadcast. Getting to the original uh ter- original uh version of the word broadcasting which means to disseminate seeds is to be able to you know uh disseminate information as widely as possible
0: and mitch you had a real privilege uh in the in the beginning years that we started off today's episode talking about in this this time where you were the Capitol hill correspondent for free speech radio news which was more or less um a a show on the Pacifica radio airwaves, you know, uh, in Berkeley, in Texas, in New York City, and uh, and and Free Speech Radio News actually kind of um, probably was one of the widely most widely distributed Pacifica radio programs in its time. Uh, I I know that it aired here in Portland, Oregon, back in two thousand and four. Um, it was one of the only Pacifica shows that aired on on the kboo in portland oregon which is not a pacifica radio station um it aired everywhere i would hear i would hear my my voice coming out of airwaves all over the place weirdly um okay but you are you're the capitol hill correspondent in the early 2000s um how long did you work for free speech radio news on capitol 2003
1: hill? to 2006
0: it seems like so much longer in my memory those were very important years. One of the reasons we are speaking today is because those were um those were important years in the uh so-called war on terror as we used to call it. The so-called so-called war on terror, it was the moment when when uh the Iraq war began.
1: No. No, no, no. I it, 2003 was the year that the Iraq war began. You were right about that. I actually got to Washington D.C. A few months after the war uh, had begun, uh, the war had begun, uh, I believe, in in March, uh, the middle of March. Yeah. And I got to D.C. in August. Uh, but I will say since and I'm sure this is not going to air on the same day that we're talking, but we are talking on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And I would say that my reporter, my reporting career, especially the beginning of it, and my foundational years was covering the war on terrorism. Even before I got to Washington D.C., on the day of nine eleven two thousand and one, I was um, I was a volunteer reporter at KPFA, and I went in to report that day, which is you know a day I'll I'll never forget. And then, of course, from that day on, uh, the war on terrorism was the dominant story uh, that I covered, and that most news outlets were covering. Uh, all the way up, I would say, until about maybe two thousand and six or so, and then I think this fatigue the war still you know went on there's no question about that, but there was this public fatigue that people were having about the war, and I think over the years, less and less we everyone uh was paying attention to the war. Yeah. but the foundational years for me were definitely from 2001 really starting at 911 because that changed everything. Right. Uh and- from 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 911 uh probably through that next decade uh the war on terrorism was the most important story uh at least in in my life and in my career.
0: And you mentioned a moment ago how we broadcast uh we we take we take the stage as it were uh to share voices with the listeners and it's um I think that I hope that on community radio, um, people approach that work uh, with more gratitude and humility. Hopefully, than they tend to uh, in 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 the in the so-called corporate media in places where maybe it's it seems more of a like uh, like they're the ones who you should be proud to listen to them. It seems sometimes the 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 other side of the coin. So okay, we're we're on the airwaves. And we have this privilege to to be here, um, and then we're talking now about a moment when, you know, in the immediate aftermath of two thousand one, September eleventh, two thousand one, where, uh, as we used to say on the radio, the war drums are beating um, very loudly. It's pretty much the dominant narrative of its time, especially on the airwaves of of commercial news media. Uh, the march to war is sort of unstoppable at that point and yet uh Mitch at that time you're volunteering at a at a radio station in Berkeley California which was founded by pacifists uh in the aftermath of World War II and has been on the air in as a non-commercial radio station uh, it it's it's the it it built the model uh in so many ways of, um, listener sponsored radio coming out of, uh, and this is Pacifica radio KPFA in Berkeley. Yeah. You know, it, it is, it is listener sponsored in the post-war period as, as an alternative voice uh, for peace as it were. And here we are, uh, uh, 50 years later in step on September 11th, 2001, like tell me tell me about that time of making radio
1: i feel like and first to acknowledge and i think we're seeing this on the anniversary of nine eleven. that remembering that a lot of people died on that day and a lot of families were put into turmoil on that day and a lot of kids grew up without their parents because of that day and the shock and we all remember that shock eric when nine eleven happened everyone knows where they were, and I remember the entire day uh vividly uh, of that day, and w- which is to me pretty remarkable, but it 's like you know growing up, I always heard everyone knew exactly what they were doing when they heard about the assassination of j f k or when you know uh, people landed on the moon, everyone knew exactly where they were, but that was before my time. Well, what happened on nine eleven was what my, our time, right? And and that will be a day I, I will never forget. And and I don't want to downplay the the tragedies that happened. And in saying all that, I actually believe the war on terror years are probably, in my opinion, the golden years of KPFA, the station that 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 I worked at. And the reason I I say that, and everyone has their own idea of. You know, what the gold is. So but everyone has their own ideas of what KPFA is. So I'm sure other people have their other ideas of uh KPFA, including KPFA's role during the communist witch hunts of the 50s and early 60s, et cetera, et cetera. But for my time, KPFA was the only radio station, and this is the internet exists, as you just explained, Eric. We were all uh putting a newscast together over the internet. Um, but most people weren't getting their news from the Internet yet, uh, and it's still the same handful of television cable companies, a handful of radio stations and a handful of newspapers that are forming the framework of how the public sees things and perceives things and reacts to them. And that was very much happening on September 11th and in, in the f- few years past uh, September 11th, 2001. And KPFA was one of the very few, you can't say only, but maybe even in broadcasting. Well, I say KPFA, I should say Pacifica at at, at large. When I say Pacifica at large, I also include sort of affiliates to Pacifica, other community radio stations out there. I think we're also uh, a a part of this trend that KPFA was was doing, but um, was really the only place on the radio that you could hear dissidents speaking about. What was happening here in this country in our march, not just our march to war in Afghanistan, but also what was happening on the domestic front with the FBI uh, ramping up its surveillance, especially of, of Muslim American communities here. And and KPFA, when I say KPFA, again, I mean it for kind of the larger community radio world. KPFA was the one place where you would hear dissent, where you would hear Questioning about how, you know, who would talk about, we should understand why we got hit in the first place and the role the United States has played in the world that would create such animosity towards people to want to strike the United States. And it wasn't to defend the strike, but it was to try to put it in context. This is. A period of time after the fall of the Soviet Union when the United States becomes the sole superpower in the world and is wielding its power in however it feels fit, including its power in the Middle East, especially over resources like oil. And, and, and we were supporting really repressive, terrible regimes, and this caused a lot of animosity uh, towards the United States, and we should understand this. And KPFA was the one place... That you would get it, and if I could just tell you a story quickly, but it's a little bit long. But but I believe we have some time, so so give me a little space here because I actually want to back up six months before nine eleven happened. I was a but I'm going to talk about what happened to me on nine eleven that day. But six months before, I was a volunteer reporter for KPFA, and I went down to Mexico uh, because the Zapatista Zapatistas Liberation Army Indigenous Army from Chiapas, Mexico. Um, were actually coming out of Chiapas. They had their uprising in 1994. And in 2003, uh, end of February, beginning of March, they began a long caravan leaving leaving Chiapas and traveling all through southern Mexico on a caravan that was going to get to Mexico City, the country's capital, to get to the Socoló, where the capital building is. And I went on that march with them. And I covered it for KPFA, and it was on March 11th um, that they arrived to the Sokolo. A million people showed up. And this was really an amazing moment because I lived in Mexico during the 1990s. And the Zapatistas were around. They, again, they started their uprising in 1994. But there was a lot of negativity in Mexico towards the Zapatistas in the 1990s. I did not live in Chiapas. I lived in the about 100 miles north of Mexico City in a, in a city in a state called Querétaro. Um, but i was fascinated by the zapatistas but just to give you an example i was part i was a student ex- i was a foreign student exchange i was a, a, what would it be, a student a, a foreign exchange student um, and when i got to mexico i brought with me my subcomandante marco shirt and when i would wear that to class people got angry with me right um, and there was a lot of racism and negativity towards the indigenous population when i went back to cover this march in 2003 it, it it This march kind of flipped the nation's imagination, mm. both about the Zapatistas, but also about what it meant to be indigenous. And, you know, most Mexicans are also indigenous um, and people were suddenly, you know, connecting to their their roots in, in this way. And it was a very beautiful thing. And so a million people show up to the Socoló in Mexico City on March 11th. And I get all of this recording. I have a ton of tape on my mini disc and then I'm, and the way I'm actually getting these stories back to KPFA is I'm finding a, a, a telephone booth. I am, I I get in the telephone booth. I make a collect call to Mark Miracle over at the KPFA news department. And then I take a headphone. I, I, I was actually able to produce my story and create clips in a very ingenious way on the mini disc player itself. And the way I was able to do that is I had a friend with me, Kirk Martin, who's Matt Martin's brother, a longtime uh, radio producer here in the Bay Area. Kirk Martin also had a mini disc player. And we connect our mini disc players through a mini to mini wire so that we could exchange sound. And I was able to actually create a new story on a mini disc player by itself. And then the way I would get this story to Mark Miracle is I would wrap the telephone receiver to a headphone and turn up the headphone as loud as I could, and then Mark and I would play it in real time, and Mark would record it, and and that's how I got him those stories. And which, Mark which would
0: record it to analog on a reel-to-reel tape. tape. Yeah. This
1: was all to get it onto a reel-to-reel tape. And that's another part of the story is um, KPFA always a little bit behind the curve when it com- ahead of the curve when it comes to uh,
0: content. You know,
1: when it comes to, you know, uh, in, in a just world, a little behind the curve when it comes to technology.
0: It costs a and, lot of money in, in the year 2000 to convert your entire analog radio uh, production, you know, that you've that you've invested decades in. It costs a lot of money to switch. And um, it, no, no, it's hard fair. to train people. And uh, anyway. That's, fair.
1: that's <laughs> I, fair. No, that's absolutely fair. But we're still behind the curve. Okay. Yeah. And uh, And up to this point, in learning radio, and, and when I'm in the at the station, I I learned how to to edit using the old way, on reel to reel tape. Yeah. I remember using an actual razor blade I and you know sticky tape to put it back together and everything. And I always told myself that I I'm glad I'm learning this now because when I'm older and I want to come back to the archive, I'll know how will I'll know how to access it. Well, and and of I, course, twenty years later, and I never have. I
0: I want to say though also is that because I I did not cut tape as a radio producer, but I did have the opportunity to cut film to make one student film with, uh, uh, very cheaply in college. But I noticed right away cause I'd even, I'd seen, I'd been, I'd had my hands on digital tools as a, as an amateur filmmaker in high school. Like, uh, you know, and then when I was cutting the physical tape, uh, a few years later, I realized that there was a, a real value in, in having a clip and seeing it physically pinning it to the wall and knowing that's my that's my clip and i'm gonna use it and I think that having having that opportunity to build i'm I'm wondering if you think that uh having that opportunity to learn how to build your radio stories mitch by physically clipping the the sound bite out and knowing how long it was. In inches, um, how that helped you as a digital radio producer?
1: Well, I never taped it to the wall. So no. I actually never saw the length of a particular clip. But I will tell you what happened. I I, I am a lifelong u- wheelchair user. And I, I, I push my chair. I have a manual chair. And... What would happen with discarded tape, it was more of an issue with discarded tape. And you had a lot of discarded tape. And we, it marked, and we did it the Mark Miracle way. You just threw that to the ground when you didn't need it because you're on deadline and you need to get this done as soon as you possibly can.
0: The end. cutting room floor, kids.
1: The and floor. And so the whole floor would just be full of tape. And every day after I was done... Uh, filing my story, I'd have to go in another room, get out of my chair, and painstakingly take out all the tape that had got into my wheels, especially the smaller front wheels of my wheelchair, because it got all tangled up in there. And it would sometimes be a, a difficult task uh, to be able <laughs> to do all that. So, so why am I? Why are we talking about this when I started talking about nine eleven? Well, the the connection here is again the Zapatistas ar- arrive to the Sokolo, which is this historic moment. On March 11th, then I come home and I have all the, everything that I played up to that point was received from the telephone, even though I actually had in-person sound, you know, it was, it was all heard on the telephone because that's how I was getting my stories to Mark Miracle. So when I came home, I was like, I have all this sound. I want to make a documentary. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to learn how to do digital editing on a computer, which I had never done before that point. And I'm going to take time and I'm going to learn how to do that. And I'm going to I'm going to make this documentary that way. And of course, that took a little while to do. And so I was trying to think of a peg of, well, when can I finish this documentary? And the morning show at the time at KPFA had agreed to play it. And I thought about it. I'm like, oh, what about on September 11th? That will be the six month anniversary of the Zapatistas arriving in the Socolo. That seems appropriate to me. Let's do that. So uh, Lisa Rothman, who is the executive producer of the KPFA morning show at the time, gives me the go ahead, says that they'll air it uh, on that day. And, and, and I start working on it. September 10th comes around. I'm almost done. It, it really took a few months to work on it. I needed so much of it was in Spanish and, and I needed people to be able to, uh, Uh, to read English over it. Uh, I remember I had the great Wendell Harper, who had the great Wendell Harper voice, uh, reading the parts of Subcomandante Marcos, which was pretty awesome. Uh, And, you know, so I finally put it all together, and I'm finishing it up on September 10th, and it's late night, and I'm trying to beat my BART curfew because the last BART train heading to Oakland comes at midnight. And I'm sitting in the room, and of course, because KPFA is behind the curve, I produced this digital documentary, audio digital documentary to be played on the air. But KPFA has no capacity to be able to play a digital file on the air. So I had to record it back to analog so that oh, they could you record even, it, on, it so that they could play it on real That was before
0: the burning a CD moment? That's amazing.
1: It could have been. That was, you know, it was such a long time ago. It wasn't an option. I'm sure
0: it was a transitional moment. I, I mean, I worked at KPFA near around this time, and it was like one computer in one office had the power to burn a CD, but you didn't want to have to try to burn a CD anywhere else in the building because you couldn't depend on that computer to have a reliable CD burner at the time. So yeah, yeah. And then, and 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 you're also referring to a time just in case there are young people listening, uh, computers in an office were not necessarily networked to one another at this time. They were really isolated workspaces that, that whose hard drives were closed. (laughs) That's right.
1: That's right. And it's very unclear if the engineer and the people that are working in the morning would even be comfortable with a different format. And I want to,
0: I I do want to jump in and just say, just say that only a few years later, KPFA fully embraced networked computers and digital audio files so much so that it would, uh, you you wouldn't even notice coming into the building as I did in two thousand three, which is only three years, two and a half years after your narrative. Everything was networked. Everything worked really well.
1: well I think you had a, you all had a lot to do that, and the and the team at Free Speech Radio News right. actually think had a lot of because again, as we were talking earlier, that's where the tech team. Was located, and I, I think you all had a, a a big role. Yeah, we were in making that happen because of
0: because of our job of putting together this half hour, twenty nine minute daily radio show and pushing it out to the network, which went out on a satellite feed as well as went out on the internet. And needed, you know, we we were using diff you know, the tech team was two people, and their computers had to be networked, and we were feeding our show into a studio off a computer, and we didn't have time to do it any other way. So because of the because of the 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 tension of Free Speech Radio News's daily tasks, which were important, which weren't just about our own ego, it was about getting this news program out to the entire network, we were able to lean on kpfa's incredible engineering staff which at the time was uh computer professionals who were full-time coding as well as audio engineers who were capable of networking machines and, and coming up with solutions so yeah it was a real it was a real um the community the professional community at kpfa really pushed the technical envelope uh, very quickly but mitch
1: let me, let, me, let me go back to where I was. Yeah, though. I, I, I don't want to stop the story before we even get to the good part. Yeah. I recognize it's a long one, but you asked for 90 minutes. So I'm giving it to you. So I have to record my 20 minute documentary uh, onto reel to reel tape so that they could play it the next morning, which was going to be September 11th. And it's September 10th. It's about 11 o'clock. I still have a few minutes where I got to worry about my train. And I'm in the new studio room with uh, Kelia Ramirez the late great Kellya Ramirez was a main staple at KPFA uh, for, for many years in the news department. And she's helping me. She's assisting me record it to to reel to reel. And when the 20 and we had to do it real time, obviously. And when the, when it was over, she's sitting there listening to the whole thing. She looks at me and she just says, that was genius. And of course I believed her. Now, there's a lot of things in the past i thought were genius at the time and remembered as being genius and i've since gone back and heard some of it and i'm like and i cringe i'm like oh my god that was was not genius (laughs) it was something but it was not that and that it's very possible that's what this is too regrettably i've actually lost the documentary um but uh but that's what she said and i believed her at the time because i put a lot of work in it and i thought so too and And, and i want to say that I'm
0: going. You know, Kelly Ramirez pick was was one of those individuals at the KPFA in the KPFA building who picked up paid shifts and worked as a paid worker, but also volunteered countless hours. And the ratio would would probably fluctuate wildly based on my own experience as being one of those individuals. And I'm going to assume that at this moment, Kelly Ramirez is at work. It's eleven o'clock and she is there helping you Mitch Jezrich the young radio producer finish your documentary for the love of sent of getting these voices from the Zocalo in Mexico City out to the northern california radio audience not not for a paycheck but because she believed it was valuable and helping you was was fun
1: i think that's right i think that's right kelly ramirez was 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 a real Real mensch, a real great human being, yeah. uh, and and so much so, so dedicated. So I mean, uh, I, she had a couple of heart attacks. Uh, the second one would take her out. The first one she had while she was engineering the news department. Oh my god! Which almost seems fitting, actually, in many ways. Um, and so it, that happens with her. And now I'm I'm going to Bart because I need to uh, get on the last Bart train. I remember coming out of the elevator uh, at Berkeley BART onto the platform. I remember a bit this visually coming out of it and thinking to myself, because I thought I just had produced something great. And I'm coming out of the BART elevator and I'm thinking to myself, tomorrow my life's going to change. Tomorrow my the things are not going to be the same. So I get home. I set my alarm for 7.08 in the morning, because that's the exact minute that my documentary is supposed to start to be playing. It was one of those clock radios and, and I wanted to wake up to the drums that begin the documentary. I wanted to wake up to that. So I go to sleep. Then the alarm goes off. And it's not my documentary I hear at first. Instead, I hear Larry Bensky's voice, who's not even a host of that program. But I'm just waking up. I mean, at that, at that very same moment that the alarm goes off, my phone starts ringing. So I'm like, well, let me... Let me go answer this phone. I'm I'm sure it's somebody calling to congratulate me. (laughs) Right? You're not thinking clearly at that moment, you know? And I pick up the phone, I'm like, hello. And I hear this woman's voice on the other end screaming at me I'm not going to work today. I'm staying home right here and I'm going to die with my kids. And I'm like, who is this? <laughs> you know, again, I don't know what's going on. I'm just like, wait, 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 wait what, what? And she's like, and it was my coworker, because I was a volunteer reporter at KPFA. I worked somewhere else at the time. And she's like, turn on the TV. And I turn on the TV. And I see a single tower of, of, of the World Trade Center standing. The other one had already collapsed. And the one that was still up was, you know, smoldering in smoke. And then, of course, I realized, yeah, they're not playing my documentary on the air. Larry Bensky's there, who was really the national affairs correspondent for the, net, uh, the the network. He's the guy that would come in such a moment to to start to provide analysis and interview people and to do coverage. And 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 I was just in shock. And I and I lived and I still do. I lived in Oakland. I had an apartment that oversaw downtown. I'm looking out my window. I'm wondering, man, why is I'm in shock? I'm like, wow, am I in danger? I think everyone thought this at the time, right? Am I in danger where, where I am? Is something going to happen here in the downtown area? And so I'm just sitting there and I'm watching it for a long time. And then suddenly, and just again, sort of just to, this is sort of I'm going to get into why I think KPFA was so important in these years. I'm stuck with a question is, do, do I go into work or do I go to the radio station and, and help out there? They, they may need it. And, of course, there was no question I was going to go to the radio station. This was before eventually the work said, hey, don't come in. No one's coming in. But this was before that even happened. I already already decided, well, sorry, work. I'm I'm going to KPFA. And I take BART back to Berkeley. And I get on the train. And it's really wild because whenever you get on the train at that hour going away from San Francisco, it's usually empty. Right. Because everyone's going towards San Francisco that hour but this train was packed with people going away from San Francisco packed with people who were just leaving the city again no one in, you know i was worried about downtown oakland ever imagine what it would have been like being in downtown san francisco on this day
0: yeah and i would like to mention that um if you turned on cable news at the moment that the 911 attacks were happening uh that was that was the message who knows who knows what's happening next it seemed like a cascade of of escalating violent catastrophes that could hit anywhere at any time because it wasn't just New York City it was it was other points on the map that that certainly get less attention now and and uh and sort of just like a a cloud a th- a cloud of threat and and potential
1: well Eric there were a ton of rumors at the time yeah. And that was actually my first assignment to to follow up on. So I'm on this train coming into Berkeley and it's packed and everyone's looking at each other. You know, when you're on a a, a BART train or a subway train, no one looks at each other, right? People are looking at each other and not saying anything. And everyone had this look on their face of like, what the hell is happening? And so I get to the radio station. I walk in and I see Mark Miracle and Eileen Alfandary, and everyone's there now. I'm like, Hey, I'm here to help in any, anything you need. And Mark says, and puts my very first story is to follow up on all these rumors that we are hearing about having been hit. And you can understand, I mean, rumors fly anyways. And this is a good lesson to understand uh, when you are, are covering something that first happens, most people end up getting the story wrong in the first few hours. In fact, even before I came on to join you, I was watching some CNN and CBS coverage of when the towers were first struck. And their speculation was wildly off of of what was happening. And so I get into the radio station, we're hearing rumors that the um Lawrence Livermore Lab had been hit in California.
0: Yeah, which is a nuclear
1: facility. <laughs> yeah. And so my first assignment is to call is to follow up on all these rumors. I had to call the Lawrence Livermore Lab to see if anything had happened there, and nothing had happened in California, right? Well, at least not that way. Some things did happen in California, which I'll get to next. So, anyways, I get I get finished following up on on all these rumors. None of them were true. Yeah, uh, we and that was just a, just a
0: few hours of work as a reporter.
1: That yeah, that, I was done with that within an, an hour or two. Okay. You know, um, and then my next assignment comes, and and this would be a pivotal moment. I, I feel like in in my life, uh, I go to Mark Miracle. I'm like, what else do you need? And he's like, we want you to monitor and follow up and report on any potential hate crimes or backlash against Muslims or people who appear to be Muslims. That Whenever I think back on that, that was really profound because at the moment, everyone was asking, why do they hate us? And, and, and you know, there, there, there was some reason for that. And, you know, and we're, we're so connected to their own trauma and the trauma that happened to the country I don't think there was anyone else, and I could be wrong on this. There may be examples. I'm happy to be wrong if so, but I don't think if if there were others, there weren't many who were worried about particular communities yeah. that were now vulnerable, yeah. especially because of all
0: this, especially in newsrooms, uh, in in newsrooms with large broadcast reaches, um, you know, and and it just just to say it, like Mark Miracles, a white man. And so, for for the white news director of of a of a professional and volunteer run newsroom to recognize in the in the first hours of the crisis, um, how are how are Muslim communities and and Muslim
1: that uh, was the first thing that came to our mind. Yeah, I, I'm a white man too, and, and that was that was the first thing that that we thought about that that was important for us because, to cover
0: because we had seen. If you had been paying attention with a social justice uh, framework in the past, we have already seen before 2001, September 11th, that if there were uh, terrorist attacks or perceived <laughs> terrorist attacks on, on – tar- that that hate crimes in the United States would go up. This is already a pattern that we could expect, and if you were paying attention to it, it would be no surprise that this one would be – this one, this event would be worse.
1: And just imagine to watch what was happening on 9-11 was traumatic for everyone, everyone, no matter what religion, no matter what color you were. It, it was it was traumatic. It was traumatic for me to watch it. I was in shock. But then what I could not imagine and what did not happen to me personally is then imagining suddenly everyone in the country looking at you and people like you and anger starting to be directed towards you for something like that happening. And that is exactly what happened on that day. I talked to the Muslim peace center in San Jose who had their windows broken. Might be worth double checking that part. I kind of wonder myself, did did they really have their windows broken or am I mixing up because somebody else had their windows broken? I actually don't. I, I think they had their windows broken, but I'm just putting this out there that, you know, that, that, that could be off a little bit. Yeah. Um, but their voicemail was full of hatred and some of the most disgusting thing. And and they plugged me into their voicemail. I don't know how they did it, but I got a clear recording of their voicemail and it was one message after another of men. I only heard men screaming at the top of their lungs, how they wanted them to die, how they hated them, how this was their fault. I mean, imagine the shock of 9-11 was shocking, but imagine that. And then this follows up and you're having all this anger directed towards you. And so I recorded it and we recorded it and it was full of expletives and we put it on air as it was, even though we might have gotten in trouble by the FCC for um, expletives going out on the air. And we played it several times on the air with the purpose of saying this isn't this isn't cool this isn't okay this is a problem and and to me that's when i realized this i want to i want to work with kpfa i want to be here because that was the right thing to do i think now it might seem obvious it was the right thing to do but i i but, but it, it wasn't so ob- i think it was obvious for us but it wasn't so universally accepted that that was the right thing to do back in 2001 yeah
0: i I really appreciate that. I think that from my experience of being someone who consumed media prior to coming to KPFA in the middle of the early 2000s and then someone who helped produce media from inside of a radio station with that kind of um, editorial perspective of, of, of always trying to seek out the, the story that would, that would help. You know shed light on the on the situation as opposed to you know whipping up you know beating war drums or or making the situation worse for vulnerable people uh and then I happen to work at my desk at k p f a during the years that uh Twitter and Facebook come into the world and i and I'm gonna focus more on Twitter than Facebook and I genuinely believe. That you that, that an argument can be made that Twitter pushed it's like that there, there was something about Twitter that pushed everything over into uh, the kind of framework that we're talking about where we consider you know how it 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 centered new voices you know and, and a lot of people of color and Muslim voices as well like there was a way in which Twitter um, opened it up opened up the world of of mainstream storytelling. Uh, You know, lots of terrible things have been posted and disseminated on that website as well, including a particular uh, presidential candidate and then leader of the free world. It made a lot of
1: things possible that weren't possible before Twitter.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the Black Lives Matter movement is very much a Twitter. And, you know, and and at the time, you know, there was a moment... Uh, maybe one of Twitter's greatest moments in a weird way and a different topic for another story was the um the spring the Egyptian spring uh seemed to be very much a um a Twitter based uh,
1: absolutely no 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 social, social media changed changed how we get information. It's but the years dark, we're talking right? about yeah hmm? I'm just so saying... the years okay. we're talking about is before. Yeah, exactly. This is before we have that and that's what made KPFA so special. And so that that's my story on 911, but it didn't stop on 911. Those were the kind of stories that we were doing for the next several years and we were the only place you could really get this kind of at least on the radio, which was still a dominant form of media at the time, um where you could get an analysis that's trying to say, here's why 9-11 probably happened. We should probably consider our own role in the world and how we treat the world. Here's what's happening. We have civil rights right now being violated by Muslims in this country. We were doing shows about the internment of Japanese Americans from the 1940s to make sure that we weren't forgetting some of this history, you know? Um, And, and... We were really the one place that was critical of the reasons to invade Iraq two years later or less than two years later because it was early 2000 and about a year and a half later. It was a in long
0: buildup and debate public, you know, and quote unquote debate because it really just seemed like a, a lot of mainstream media was helping to make the case for starting the war, not not helping to air both sides of a debate.
1: Today, Barbara Lee is enshrined in history as a hero, as being the one person to vote against the authorization for the use of military force in the war on terrorism in 2001. It happened on September 18th, just several days after the attacks happened. Um, Today, she is widely, you know, lionized for 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 that act. But at that time, she was largely condemned For that act. I remember a a politician who got some standing here, it was a Green Party member at one time, Adi Bach, who you think would have been supportive of Barbara Lee. But after Barbara Lee did that one no vote, urging people to be cautious, uh, Adi Bach challenged her in in the next year's primary In the 2002 primary. Um, There was only one place, but there was one place Barbara Lee had to go or she could go. Where she did get a a fair hearing, right. and that was KPFA. And we formed a very close relationship during those years uh with Barbara Lee. We had events with Barbara Lee during this period of time. You the, the, the slogan Barbara Lee Speaks for Me is very much related uh to this. And and Barbara Lee still gets the attention. We remember her for that, but I, I fear as we're as we're as we're marking the twentieth anniversary of KPFA that KPFA is actually not getting the credit it should get 20 years after for its role that it played in the war on terrorism. And Eric, it was remarkable because this goes all the way up into the Iraq war in the years past the Iraq war. Um, listeners responded. It was amazing. We would have fund drives really starting from nine eleven on. I don't think we were in fund drive on 9/11 we weren't but 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 after every fund drive we'd have after after September 11th 2000, 2001 every fund drive we'd have after that we made a lot of money right people were donating like crazy we would make you have checked the books to to, to fact check this but I think we were making like a million dollars in a week in a fund drive which was Unheard of. It's still unheard of. But for a few years there, every time we asked for money, those phones, you would be a phone room volunteer taking these pledges. As soon as you would, there would be 12 people in the room. As soon as you'd put the phone down, it would ring and you have to pick it right back up to do it again. And that would go on for a whole day. And if you're familiar with fun drives, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, a time, a time that
0: we may never return to. And again, that that
1: was incredible. And you know, know, I would, I remember, I would go cover, um, the Iraq War happens. I'm, I I get my first paid gig with KPFA in 2002 as a Sacramento State Legislative Correspondent. This is what uh, Christopher Martinez has done now. Ever since I left in 2003, he's still there doing it. So he's approaching 20 years. Such a
0: valuable reporting job in california because you know california what what, you know a nation unto itself a very important place and the the state capital is not very well covered by local media by by statewide media especially it during the span of years that we're talking about
1: oh it, it and it still is and as somebody who's covered uh the state the state capital in california sacramento And the federal capital in Washington, D.C., I would argue what happens at the state capital is far more impactful on your daily lives than what than what happens in Washington right. DC. And the numbers may sound wild because right. all the attention is in Washington, DC. But the reality is is if you talk about the parameters of of, of Medicaid and if you're going to get dental or the ability for undocumented immigrants to get a driver's license or, you know, what how benefits are going to some of the money for benefits comes from the federal government, but it's the states that set up the parameters. Right. And right. so it's really what happens at the state level that will affect people's daily lives much more than anything that happens in Washington, D.C. Nonetheless, all the attention is on Washington, D.C. But when the Iraq War happened in 2003, I was reassigned from the Capitol in Sacramento and told to cover the street protest in San Francisco. And what was really remarkable in these street protests in San Francisco is they literally shut San Francisco down yeah, for was, 4 days. I, I think this is another story that kind of gets lost. But there was nothing, especially in the financial district of San Francisco. It was and and that was a slogan, no business as usual. Why we're at war. We all remembered the Gulf War in 1991. And, you know, it became a, a, a TV event and it was like watching a movie and life went on as though there wasn't a war at all other than your entertainment on TV. Well, part of the idea was shutting down San Francisco was no business as usual. And for four days, that's exactly what happened. And KPFA played a huge role in that. I remember getting there early, going to Justin Herman Plaza down by the Embarcadero, a big plaza for people who aren't familiar with it um, going down there. Cause that's where protesters were first going to meet. And it would it, the protests would spread all over the city. Um, but that's where they would first meet. And I'd be doing a live spot for the morning show with Andrea Lewis and Philip Muldery. And as I'm talking to them, I can hear my voice echoing throughout the entire plaza through different radios because so many people there were actually listening to KPFA while they were there. I remember going to, um, I remember doing a live spot in the in the middle of the day when I got word that protests were going to regather at Montgomery and Market, and I reported that on the radio within a half hour people started showing up throngs of people started showing up and I even asked them like how do you all know this was happening They're like oh i heard it on the radio like wow right. that's really cool i remember at another gig i was driving down to san jose i wasn't driving but a friend was driving down to san jose and there were people protesting on a highway overpass against the war and one of their big banners that they fur- furled uh, that, that, that they that they let down said listen to 94.1 kpfa it was an amazing period of time um that i think you know when i explain all this i i think this was a real golden era for and i keep saying kpfa but i think it's correct to say pacifica at large community radio at large yeah. this was a golden era for democracy now which of course airs at kpfa but is not a kpfa product and then when i went to washington dc in 2003, a couple of months later, this was before people's opinion about the war changed. This was before the insurgency in Iraq really took hold. And there was no one there other than us and our small bureau that we created at the Capitol that was going around and asking about, well, were the weapons of mass destruction? Wait a minute. We were lied to. Weren't we lied to getting into this war? What about enemy combatants at Guantanamo Bay? We were the only ones going up to John McCain asking him, hey, um, as a former prisoner of war, are, are you not concerned about holding detainees at Guantanamo Bay outside the the uh, extrajudicially, extra outside of the law, outside of the Geneva Conventions that we are a part of? and he would yell at me. Right? He he was not happy to, to hear those questions. Right. But we were it. We were the only I mean that that would change. The insurgency started to happen. The Iraq war turned ugly. People got tired of the war in Afghanistan. And, and I don't mean to say that there weren't other people critical of these these wars. There were. One of the biggest global uh demonstrations ever happened in the lead up to the war in, in Iraq. Um but not the media. Ever you remember Eric, every, all, all the, all the TV newscasters had their American flag, uh, lapel pin on, on their, on their coats. You know, uh, it, 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 there was just this fever of patriotism that really struck this country. I would say between 2001 and 2005. And there was one place that didn't fall into that, that there was one place like, this is crazy and we're acting like we're crazy. And that was KPFA and Pacifica Radio at large. And for me, this will always be a, a golden era in, in community radio.
0: That's, I'm glad you had the I'm glad you've said these things. We're we're wrapping up our time for the radio audience, but I'm going to ask you a lot more questions. Uh, and the podcast coming up which you can get online at radiosurvivor.com as we continue to talk Mitch Jezrich about your time producing community radio. Uh, you've, you've told us a tale today where where the beginnings of your time at, at the radio station KPFA as a volunteer were were, were centered in your memory around the, the, the day that the September 11th attacks occurred and your decision to devote your your professional, energies even as a volunteer you know you made this choice to go to work as a radio journalist where you did the work of you know first reporting are rumors true which is such a valuable thing for a journalist to do to pick up the phone and 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 verify that the things they're hearing are true or false and then report that information to the audience as soon as it's been uh, clarified not prior to that but not getting the order mixed up, which is so important. And one of the, one of the primary jobs of, of someone who has the privilege to be on the microphones of radio stations is not to speculate into microphones wildly when, when things are at stake. Um, up until, uh, interviewing vulnerable communities on the very first day, how are you doing? What threats are you receiving? What, what can, what can people do to help and, and what comes next? Um, uh, uh. Thank you so much for coming on to Radio Survivor. Let's, let's turn Mitch to um. To, like yeah, so you're on, you're you're out there on Capitol Hill getting the voices of elected officials on the record for this national radio audience, and I like. How did you approach that job every day? Because it's you know Pacifica, as you've been describing in this hour, it's so special. It's this one. <laughs> Is this one voice uh, against the war when the war was popular.
1: It it was it, it felt like a serious responsibility, right? Because the thing is, people were tuning in. People were listening. We didn't have the majority of the people in this country listening, but our, we could even see it in our numbers. Our number of listeners gone up. And the people that were listening were passionate about it. And there was a lot on the line, what you were going to say and what they were going to hear. And if you weren't meeting expectations, you were going to hear about it. Um, and so there was a lot of pressure at at the time uh, to cover uh, these stories. And again, when 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 I got to Washington D, it just yeah, Washington D.C. is interesting. Um, suddenly, and and I covered mostly the state, and mostly the Capitol Hill, the Capitol building. Uh, I my, my I covered the White House, I covered the Supreme Court, I covered all of the federal government from Washington D.C. But the Capitol building was the best place to cover, if you could only pick one to cover. Word has it that, the and I've been told by White House correspondents, worst place to cover the White House is the White House, because you're, 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 they put you in a small room and everything is very controlled. Uh, in the Capitol, and I think this actually ha- played a role in what happened on January 6th of the Capitol this year, 2021, uh, with, with the riot at the Capitol. The Capitol has security, no question about it but it was much more hands-off than you would find at the white house or at the Pentagon or at the Supreme court. Um, and one reason is you have 535 members of Congress. Uh, another reason is you have uh, m- many people coming to visit their representatives. Right. And so there was a bit there, the Capitol was much more open uh, than say the white house was, which is just sort of a militarized fortress these days and you had access at the Capitol. Now, because I worked for Free Speech Radio News, which because no one ever even had heard of it, whenever I asked for an interview, I just said Pacifica Radio because um, no one even knew what I was talking about when I said Free Speech Radio News. And no one ever, unless it was like a Barbara Lee or a, you know, a, a, a sort of a lefty, Dennis Kucinich. Was, yeah, it was no, Kucinich, no,
0: Kucinich in, in office at that point.
1: Yeah, it was Dennis Kucinich who who was there. He was the lefty at the time. And he was seen as crazy. It's not like now, right? It's not like now the lefties in Congress have a seat at the table. Um there's when like I twenty-eight was
0: there, of them.
1: Yeah. When I was there it was very different. There were a few. There were there were a few. There was Lynn Woolsey who was who was who I got very close with when I was there, who was the first member to go to the House floor. Uh, She was a Democrat from the North Bay here in in, in the San Francisco Bay area, and she was the chair of the Progressive Caucus. And she was the first member to ever bring a resolution to the House floor uh, calling for a withdrawal of troops from Iraq. And I remember I was with her out in the hallway before she went in to do it, and she turned to me, and she asked me, and she said she was nervous, and asked me if she she thought I was doing the right thing, and I probably shouldn't have said this because it probably wasn't my role as a journalist who was there to cover it. But I was like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> this is the right thing for sure." Uh, and 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 she did it, and 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 i I'll I'll, I'll I'll always remember uh, that moment as well. But she was scared to do it. And by the time she did this, I was easily at the Capitol now a good year, year and a half, you know. And and, and the team that we had compiled there was, was really an amazing team of reporters. Um, we were it. We were the only ones that would be sort of confrontational when it came to both the war on terrorism abroad and the war on terrorism uh, at home. And I, I never felt in danger. Right. But we were definitely outcasts uh, while we were there but the openness of the capitol was key to our ability to do that work. So Diane Feinstein, she would never return my calls. I wasn't the New York Times, you know, but because it was the capitol, I would know where her committee meetings are going to be that day. And so what I did a lot of time of was fishing. Fishing, in other words, I would be sitting in the hallway outside a committee hearing or outside of the Senate chamber itself waiting for a lawmaker just to walk by. And when that happened, you would jump out and you'd start asking questions, you know, and that, that, that's the way you were able to get questions there. And that's why I, it was so much easier, I think, better to cover the Capitol on a daily basis than, say, the White House. You're never going to get a question into the president, uh, you know, or, or any of these other places. But the Capitol, you can get to top lawmakers, no matter how high they were, you had access to them. And of course, I say, I, I think this openness of the Capitol, I, I don't know if it's going to be like this anymore after what happened uh, on, on January 6th this year. Uh, there are a lot of failures that allowed those those guys and women to get into the Capitol. But I think a big part of that was the culture of the Capitol and sort of more of a hands off approach to security in the Capitol uh, compared to other places. And 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 I actually fear um that's going to fundamentally change the Capitol moving forward. But when I was there, it was a pretty open place. And so I was able to ask you know, Joe Biden questions, who was the top Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I was able to ask questions to John McCain, who was heavily influential when it came to the war on terrorism. I have a ton of interviews with him. Half of them, they end with him yelling at me. Um, but but what's funny, he, answer, he didn't like me, which was too bad because he liked my predecessor, Josh Chaffin. Uh, who also asked tough questions, you know, Josh definitely held his up, held his own up at the, at the Capitol. Um, but he told me, Josh told me like John McCain would always tell him dirty jokes. Um, John McCain never told me dirty jokes. I could tell he never liked me, but, it, but he always answered my questions. He always answered my questions. But the funny thing, and this just shows how hard it is to run for president when John McCain ran for president in 2008 and lost to, uh, Barack Obama in 2009 at the very beginning I, I went back to Washington DC to cover the beginning of the Obama administration in fact this would be the birth of what would turn into the radio program that I've been working on ever since letters in politics and I'm sitting next to the Senate next to the Senate chamber and you know because that's where you got to sit waiting for lawmakers to go by. And all of a sudden, John McCain comes out. And when you run for president, you're not at the Capitol at all, right? So he really hadn't been out at the Capitol for about the last couple of years as he was running both for the Republican nomination and then for as president. But here he was, right? A new year of Congress underway. and John McCain, he lost. He's a senator again. He's still a senator. And here he is coming into the Senate chamber and he sees me and he makes a beeline right for me. And I hadn't been at the Capitol for a few years, you know, he makes a beeline right for me and he shakes my hand and he says it's good to see you and he has this look on his face of relief and all that told me of all that informed me of was wow if he's happy to see me it must be really hard to run for president (laughs) yeah i was the one that gave him uh, that, that gave him a lot of i was about to say an expletive there uh can, can we say an expletive for the podcast you know uh, uh
0: it's it's been a long time uh, but there was a moment where we kept it clean because uh there's a presumption that itunes would 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 ghettoize you as soon as you started cursing i don't think that's the case anymore seven years later into podcasting but we don't curse you know right. I, i'd end up bleeping it but uh let him fly, Let me man. Let
1: I gave him a lot of you-know-what when I was there. And so the fact right. that he was relieved to see me on when he first got back to the Capitol after running for president was pretty amazing to me and right. well, very indicative him, of of, you, of what it's like to run for president. And
0: like, let's remind listeners, you gave John McCain a lot of expletive, but what you were doing was asking – No, I didn't
1: give him expletives. Okay. I was wondering if I could say anything. Well, no, I see what you're saying. I'm but sorry. You, go ahead. What
0: you were doing was asking the senator – Like, you know, questions that put him in a real bind because his his time in the Senate during George W. Bush's war was also, you know, not only did John McCain lose to Barack Obama in the race to be the president of the United States, but John McCain lost to George W. Bush in the race to be president of the United States. That was that was his time. to to be president more maybe even more so than 2008 and and he sort of was the moral compass for the republican party at that time like because of his experience as a war prisoner and a hero you could sort of depend on him to be when did john mccain's anti-torture stance when did he start finding his voice I think them. it's
1: when Seymour Hersh broke the story concerning um, torture at Abu Ghraib. I think it was probably right around that time, but that's that's right around a lot of that time that everyone started learning about torture, including myself. Uh, I wasn't privy to torture happening at Abu Ghraib before that. I was just saying I was the one saying, wait I a minute how can we be holding these people outside of the legal norms? Right. This, got, this the, could the be bad. The, I was right. Yeah, <laughs> I was right in that. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know that something was happening at the time. I just knew that bad things tend to happen when you start going outside of the law yeah. <laughs> as a, as a, as a government and detaining people. And lo and behold, that wasn't, you know, looking back on it's like, well, yeah, of course that makes sense, you know? Um, but but John McCain, I, I think it's one Seymour Hurt. You know, see, here's the thing, John, John. And I would say this about Joe Biden, too. These these were two really influential voices, actually, in these years, because Joe Biden's the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, a staunch, John Mc-
0: a staunch uh, supporter of the Iraq war invasion and the war in Afghanistan.
1: Yes. Not yes. a critic
0: of the president when he spoke. Not well, a,
1: not much. but with some caveats, here. Yeah, some caveats here. And I would say this in this this goes for John McCain, too, actually. They would be critical, eventually, of U.S. occupation in Afghanistan and Iraq. They weren't, I want to be clear, anti-occupation, but they were criti- They would become critical in how the occupation was going right and and torture was a big part of that, but not the only part of that they were they get critical of how reconstruction was forming, so they would be critical without ever being pro we got to get out yeah, of these okay. places right that that was kind of the and I would say both John McCain and joe biden uh served served those 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 functions, but John McCain you know, was the chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee once the Republicans took control of the Senate again in two thousand. And five after George Bush was reelected. And I remember interviewing him. Human Rights Watch was clamoring about the Pentagon buying um, cluster bombs and using cluster bombs and using cluster bombs that didn't explode after. After being dropped.
0: Yeah, which they were, they, they would essentially function as landmines, which right. was uh, violated treaties and appeared to be the design of it was a feature, not a bug. That if you had unexploded cluster bomb ordinances scattered on the ground, if, if half of them or whatever the percentage was didn't explode, that actually wasn't some arbitrary mistake that they didn't design, but was intentional. And now their landmines uh they found like a loophole to seed the battlefield or not the battlefield somebody's neighborhood with with landmines which was illegal
1: well what ended up happening is children would find them yeah cuz they're little up, orange
0: batteries
1: you know, they look pretty pick them up and and lose an arm yeah at or, or worse and so human rights watch uh was clamoring over this saying like where the thing was is human rights watch wasn't even saying don't buy uh cluster bombs but buy better ones (laughs) There, there are cluster bombs that you can get that are a little more expensive but will have a much higher detonation rate and and so i went to john mccain who's the chair of the senate armed services committee it's his committee that that oversees these things and I start asking him about it, and he clearly has no idea what I'm even talking about and i'm I start even explaining to him the differences between I wasn't an expert, but I spent some time with Human Rights Watch trying to learn this stuff and and I start explaining the differences between these two bombs and and my questions aren't even you know and I think it would be a valid question we shouldn't be using these at all but but if you have a choice between two, why not get the ones that have a higher detonation rate so that uh, they're not just lying around for innocent people to be harmed from, and that, yeah, he shut me down at, at some point. You could tell he was frustrated, and I knew more about that specific thing than he did, and he just said, "Look, we clearly disagree. I'm ending it there." I just would walk right off right away, walk away.
0: And this again is in the context of you interviewing the senator for 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 the radio. Well,
1: It it, it also shows we were the only ones asking these questions because if everybody else was asking these questions, he would have had an answer.
0: Right. If the New York Times had asked.
1: You know, he he would have had had an an answer.
0: And and that was the
1: point. Um, That happened a lot because the rest of the media, you know, we weren't threatened. We were actually even treated pretty well by the Capitol itself. Um, Free office. We had an office inside the Capitol. Uh, a capital building not not the capital the capital building which is connected to the capital um and and so we 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 weren't treated terribly actually inside there but there was this feeling of we were the crazy ones
0: the we were the weird yeah.
1: ones uh why why weren't we more with this war on terror you know, why are we always asking about if we were lied to about going into Iraq or, you know, detainees? Why are we so fixated on about what's happening to detainees? Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. There, it, that would change. It,
1: that would change, but not not for a while.
0: Again, the reasons why you and the other misfit reporters, the only anti-war questioners in the capital were even there is because the The collective population of like minded radio listeners were were funding stations that paid you to be there, yeah
1: yeah and it yeah was yeah a, well, an incredible no, and, and this gets to a real truth though this gets to a real truth about the importance of public broadcasting, true public broadcasting that relies on the support from listeners or viewers that you know, as you know, Eric. Pacifica Radio, KPFA Radio, Free Speech Radio News. We never took corporate money, uh, nor did we take corporate underwriting. So you would never hear this story was made possible because a generous gift from Chevron, right? That was against our mandate. That's against who, who we were, what we believed in. And there was a reason for that. And that played into this dynamic that we're talking about on the Capitol. So if I was CNN or the New York Times, If I started asking questions that I was asking for free speech radio news, um, I was going to lose access. Right. I wasn't going to be fed the story. I wasn't going to be leaked the story uh, when the other outlets were or even before other outlets were. And what that was going to mean, let's say I was with The New York Times and all of a sudden, you know, in in journalism, timing's everything. And you always want to be the first to cover something. And if you don't cover it first, you better cover it that day. And if you're not covering it, if if you're like the New York Times and you're suddenly the Washington Post or, you know, any of these other publications are reporting on stories, being given info from senators, being leaked info from staffers um, before you are and you're not getting those stories, you're going to lose your job. And that's how they they cut you out. But the truth was, we were never getting leaked that stuff. They were never giving us stuff because we were we because we were who we were and but that wasn't a problem for us that wasn't a problem for our listenership right what our goal because we were asking the questions that we were asking was far more important rather than having access friendly access to these lawmakers and it was because of listener support that we were able to do that if we were taking commercials and started doing, and we did pl- plenty of stories about Chevron, right? And we had commercials from Chevron. Well, that's just not going to work. Yeah. They're going to pull the funding. Uh, if we get to places that are sensitive, they're going to pull the funding for that. And that gets hard once you're in that cycle, because once that funding goes, you're talking about somebody losing a job, somebody losing health care, maybe kids of somebody losing health care. I mean, it gets really deep how how dependent people come on this money that they get. And that's why it was so important for Pacifica, affiliates of Pacifica, Community Radio, to remain independent. It allowed something like us in those early years in the war on terrorism to be able to ask the questions that no one else was asking yet.
0: Mitch, I've had such a good time, and we're, we have about 10 minutes left. Um, things that we're leaving on the table include... More of an oral history of free speech radio news, its its founding, its flourishing, and its downfall.
1: I, I think you should do that, Eric. Yeah, I want I, mean, to. I think when, when you were talking, I was thinking that free free speech radio news almost sounded like one of the first internet national news programs. We
0: were, we yeah, and we I can't remember, and neither can my colleagues at the tech team. But we were darn close to having like an RSS feed. We were we were very. Very close to being like the first podcast
1: <laughs> to do the news. Um, well, you could always hear it on fsrn.org, which, by the way, website still exists. That's good. Um, you could still get the old stories from there. Though
0: that. I will, I have to put this into the record. Free Speech Radio News' hand coded original website was a masterpiece, it was beautiful hand-coded by somebody, a hero that I would like to know their name, maybe more than one person. And it functioned beautifully as a place where you could put audio, get audio, right? All of this outside of the current regime that we now understand, the current, like, corporate cloud that we all understand where, oh, you you put it on SoundCloud or, you know, you put it on YouTube, you put it on, like, there's all these you know comp- dropbox you you pay for the cloud space well free speech radio news built its cloud space and um local locally sourced internet cloud and uh that website was replaced by a more uh like a an updated design it looked better in 2010 when they replaced it or 2008 but it never functioned quite as well i will always Dearly miss the original hand coded website, but um, yeah. So, free speech radio news, uh, is a bright and shining, you know, uh, meteorite of a story in community media that I'd love to tell more. Um, we also did not talk as much about your time at the state capital and how important radio journalism is at 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 this in Sacramento. Um, we didn't talk at all, but maybe this is where I'd like to end my time with you. Is uh, and I will put into the beginning of the episode that you're the host of Letters and Politics on Pacifica Radio, and you can hear it on the internet as well as on the stations. I should well, I'll get that information from you how you want listeners to to hear these facts. Um, your time as a radio producer, you went from. Intensely devoting your life's energy towards a a a feature of the daily news cycle, you know, you were always coming at it from a very important left perspective, or you know, it's 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 reductive to even give it a political uh, binary. But you you were you were approaching the daily news cycle from you know on behalf of the audience which was largely an anti-war audience, um, this is why you are asking questions, but you were also asking questions of the day. And in the last 10 years, Mitch, you've, you've changed your focus to um, an hour-long uh, interview format, uh, four days a week, every week of the year, news magazine that's largely focused on history. I'm just. I'm pausing to make sure I'm not misrepresenting your your life's work.
1: You you've encapsulated my yeah. entire state of being,
0: and and Eric. um and I really appreciate that. And so now you have these hour long interviews with with historians, largely authors of books and experts on certain on everything. You know, um, ha- how many how many episodes of Letters in Politics have have you recorded?
1: I don't know. You, you lost count. I haven't counted. Yeah.
0: It's a valuable um, it's a valuable resource uh for listeners. Um high you know highly recommended um things I've learned from your show that I try to tell other people and then I can't explain it as well and then I need to send them the link and I don't know if they've ever listened. Like the fact that black women invented the legal concept of sexual harassment and were only able to do so by inventing intersectional <laughs> politics. Uh it was one of my favorite episodes. Uh, such a valuable lesson to learn, and to hear the to hear the author of the concept of intersectional politics, Kimberly speak. Crenshaw. Yes, yeah, the show
1: with Kimberly Crenshaw. Yeah, mm-hmm. speak
0: from her own voice. Why, why black being a black woman uh, has its unique. <laughs> why, why they invented intersectional politics? Um. Yeah, so okay, let's ask, let's ask you this question. Let's say let's say this. How is this making how is this radio, how is this new path that you've taken, you know, covering history as opposed to the daily news cycle? How is it the same? You know, I asked you the question like why are we on the radio uh, at the at the beginning? Why why is making letters in politics a, a continuation of your work in radio?
1: Well, I think that I started turning, not exclusively, but a lot to history because I think I was trying to find a new way to think about the moment that we are living in. So it was not going to history for history's sake, but it was, and this is actually what history usually is, it was looking at history to see how it could inform us about the moment that we're living through. And it's not to say that history repeats itself. Sometimes it does, but there's no guarantee of, of, of that happening. It's not automatic. But there are certain conditions that certainly do seem to repeat themselves. And in those conditions, we can analyze what happened, how people responded, what were the pitfalls, how did things go right, how did things go wrong, and just kind of looking at things to try to at least get perspective of the moment that we are living through. And I think doing daily news, covering the very latest that has happened is a vitally important thing to provide and a thing to do. We need it. We still need it. But I also came to feel a sense of dissatisfaction with how often we get it wrong at first and this pressure to be able to talk about something that has happened that we haven't fully grasped yet. And that doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. I mean, you got to start somewhere, right? You got to start somewhere, but I was feeling a sense of alienation towards that. And I also wanted to create something that had a lasting element to it a, a show. Cause a lot of shows when I, when I do breaking news, the significance, maybe a future historian would go back and find, you know, find some value in it, but most people aren't going to go back and listen to, you know, some news stories I did from 10 years ago. Right. But if I could tell stories, I would have a lasting value. You know, if we our stories on, I'm just first things off the top of my head, right? The the Russian revolutions, the French revolutions, um, learning about the story of of Polly Murray, I think is is really important. Polly Murray was a a, a a female was was a lawyer in the 1950s that provided the legal underpinnings to Thurgood Marshall for. Overturning Roe, uh, oh, I'm sorry, overturning Brown versus Board of Education, and the, or you know, we all think of Thurgood Marshall with this, but Polly Murray, who was a black woman uh, and a lawyer, uh, was the one who said we should go to the Fourteenth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. The Fourteenth Amendment is a Civil War uh, Amendment to the Constitution, and it what provides one birthright citizenship to this country and two equal protection under the law, and three, it gave the federal government the legal authority to enforce states to abide by the Bill of Rights, in particular particular constitutional rights that we all have. There was a time when the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments of the Constitution, were only seen as pertaining to the federal government itself. Only the federal government could not violate the Bill of Rights, uh, but the states and local governments could. But it's through this in part, in other rulings, this Brown versus Board of Education decision that actually changed that, that gave the federal government the right to be able to take the National Guard in and force the desegregation of a school. And this is Pauli Murray that gave these legal underpinnings for, for for this argument, and that I would argue would create the modern world because it was not just civil rights. And Pauli Murray was very important in this. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg credited Polly Murray with also applying the 14th Amendment to women, also applying the 14th Amendment to gays and lesbians. And just about every modern civil rights movement that we've had, including people with disabilities, have been able to rely on these same legal arguments that came from Polly Murray, um, who is this fascinating figure in history that most people don't know about. That connects the Civil War all the way up to our very modern moment that we 're living through right now, and to me that just had that 's an interesting story to know now it 's an important story to know tomorrow it 's an important yeah. story to know ten years from now and i kind I, I wanted to find a way to be able to talk about something that is important now, but in a way that will also have some lasting value to it down the road and so that 's what I try to do with letters and politics.
0: Mitch, we've been talking for 90 minutes. Thank you so much for your time. This has been, this has been wonderful. Uh, I, hope, I hope we can do this again because I don't think we finished the job of, of uh, recording some of the important oral history of your time at Pacifica Radio.
1: Well, I'm glad to know you're doing this work, Eric. These are, these are important stories, especially the other folks that you've been talking to too. So, so man, it was great, great to catch up, sir. Thank you.
0: My friend Mitch Jezerich hosts the show Letters in Politics, which airs on KPFA and can be found at kpfa.org. I subscribe to it as a podcast. That's how I listen. It's also available these days on YouTube. and You can watch the full hour-long interviews with historians and other experts on Letters in Politics on the YouTube You can search for it. Or there'll be links in the show notes today. This is Radio Survivor. This is a podcast and radio show that airs each week. You can email us. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Eric Klein. We'll see you next week.